Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with Dave Howlett. Is that how you pronounce it? That is correct, sir. That's correct. Okay. Hi, Dave. So why don't hey, you John. tell our listeners about yourself? What I mean, you've lived a very full life. You've done a lot, worn a lot of hats. Uh, right now, you're doing this this real human being system with the three gears and everything, and you've got this podcast, and you give these speeches all over the place. So uh, tell us about about yourself. Well, first of all, I just want to make it very clear to any of your listeners who's ever a middle child. I have a lot in common with them. I don't know if I subscribe to, you know, you have a certain personality bending on your pecking order in the family. Where were you, John? Are you only? I'm the oldest. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I fit every single obnoxious (laughs) stereotype of an oldest child, so. I'm going to introduce you to my brother. You two would get along. Is that the, the emergency room physician? No, no, no. He's actually next next down from me. But the older one is the, uh, you know, the role model. Look after your brothers, you know, uh, uh, walk the walk, be a good guy. You know, that kind of repressed kind of older guy. And uh, I was the middle <laughs> child. I was okay. the, uh, for any of your listeners who are probably, I don't know, 45, 50 and older, the Danny Bonaducci. I was the red-haired, freckle-faced kid uh, with a smart-alecky sense of humor and, uh, uh, kind of short for my age. So yeah, that was me. That was me growing up. Always the joker in the class. And uh, my dad was in the Canadian military, John. So we moved every two or three years. So put that together. You got this funny, short, glasses-wearing dude who makes jokes moving schools every two or three years. That sums me up. <laughs> and so you have this... I mean, we we kind of met online because you had made reference a number of times to this system that you've come up with, which is, I mean, you know, as a philosophy prophet, it's pretty, it's not as if it's like a, it's, it's the first time something like this has ever come up, but it's a very kind of streamlined, nice way of articulating it. And you say that basically humans have three different gears, depending upon what their intentions are at the moment. It's very sort of like almost like a Kantian system. And so you say the the first gear is where you're just being selfish. You're just thinking about yourself. And then if I understand correctly, the second gear is, is what um, evolutionary biologists call um, tit for tat, uh, 
So it's where you're basically just, you're engaging in reciprocal relationships. So if somebody is nice to you, you'll be nice back. If they are, you know, rude with you, you'll be rude back. If somebody pays you for a service, you'll fulfill the terms of the service. And it's, but it's very much, um, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. And then um, there's the third gear, which is uh, where you're doing something for reasons that are not in any obvious way selfish or reciprocal. You're doing something because um, either for purely altruistic reasons or you're doing it because it's an end in itself and you just find it rewarding to do that um, without expecting anything in return in any straightforward way. Is that is that sort of a good summary of your system? I tell you, John, if you were in my classroom, I'd give you an A for doing your homework and doing your reading assignment before the <laughs> class started. <laughs> mm. So is that is that pretty much a summary? Did I did I mess up any parts of it? No, you did pretty good. I um I started RHB years ago. Um, RHB being RHB means real human being. Um, I was uh, I was doing a presentation on networking for a life science audience. And a guy came up to me after the talk and he said, can I share a story with you? I said, yeah. He said, well, he said, uh, you know, I consult a lot in the United States. My last name is Treasury Walla. And he said, um, I find a lot of cases Americans have a hard time pronouncing my last name. And because I'm, you know, brown skinned, sometimes there's that whole thing going on there. And he said, so I got called by a, a uh, event programmer uh, and she wanted all my credentials to put behind my name on my name tag. And he said, I told her. You know, my full name is Adri Treasury. While I have professional degrees, but I, I really prefer you not put them down. Just put my first name, ADI, because I find networking and making a human to human connection is easier if somebody just looks at my name tag and just sees Addy. And she said, I'm sorry, this is, uh, this is a very prestigious conference. Uh, there are going to be physicians there. They're going to network based on your degrees. And you know, this your philosophy person, uh, you know, part of. What we talk about in society is how we pigeonhole people and put them in categories and feel superior, subservient to them. So she said, I, I need your full name and all your credentials. So he, he gave them all to her and he said he got down there and within about five minutes, him sitting at a table, John, a president of a very large company, kept looking at his name tag and finally said, uh, Dr. Treasury Walla, I recognize all your credentials, but what does RHB mean? And he said, real human being. And the guy laughed and started introducing him to other people at the table going, I'd like you all to meet Treasure, Dr. Treasury Walla. He's a real human being. And um, <laughs> anyway, I got a bit of a laugh, right? Uh, but it, it you know, kind of confirmed the premise that, look, at the end of the day, you know, we all sort of adorn ourselves with, you know, different titles and, and different identities. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. So anyway, I got back to Toronto and I threw that into a talk a couple of weeks later. And a lady came out to me and she said, I'd like to hire you to speak at our next uh, conference for our company. And I said, oh, thank you very much. I said, uh, anything I did well? She said, well, I like that story about um, the guy with the name tag. I said, what did you like about it? She said, well, in our company, sales hates marketing, marketing hates IT, nobody likes HR, and everybody hates head office. Uh, we need some more RHBs in the company. Yeah, and no, so this thought, is actually, there, there's so many things I wanted to ask you, but there's one, that that's yeah. actually one thing I wanted to ask you about, is um, I understand, you know, you, you mentioned this in a lot of your, your podcast episodes, this, this came up often about these um, 
conflicts between different departments, right? Now, I understand that there's some some conflicts which are derived from the fact that people are just, they have a different incentive structure depending upon who they are and what they, so if you are, um, you know, if you, if you have a particular role within an organization and you are, right, always fulfilling that role, you might be pretty fixated on that and you might sort of see everything through that. I, I get that. But there seems to be a sort of agnostic, um, a core agnosticism at the heart of your your approach, which I, I just wonder if it always fits. Because, I mean, I do think there are some departments, like, for instance, you mentioned everybody hates HR. Well, I know within my organization, there's a reason why people can't stand certain organizations, be certain departments, because those departments actually are not adding anything of value to the organization. Like they're just, they are like in the same way that, you know, if, if you were sort of, if you were giving like a motivational keynote talk to like a body, right? I can understand why you might say to the lungs, look, you got to understand the heart is doing this different work and you should respect what the heart does and tell the heart, yeah, you know, you should respect what the brain's doing. Uh, you know, she's got a hard job and she, you know, she lives on glucose and you but you know, there might be a <laughs> cancer in the body, like a fucking cancer. Like, and at that point, like, are you going to say, like, look, guys, you should just learn to get along with the cancer. Like, the cancer's just trying to survive like you. And if you could, no. <laughs> like, no. Like, the cancer <laughs> is actually, like, and so I see many HR departments as being a cancer on their organization. They are directly hurting, sapping resources from the organization. They are uh, just messing things up, and they're not helping. Right. You know, we, we, we have um, a, a department at my college right now, which is for kind of uh, learning disabilities and things like that. And it's, it's created this, you know, every semester there's more and more students who supposedly have these disabilities. And, you know, you'll have one class of 40 students and there'll be 12 students in the class that need, need extra time on their tests and need to be right. given like like longer time to do their essays and need all of these like at that point you know and it never you know I always notice that like class in in terms of class terms um the kids who can afford to get the proper doctors to get the paperwork filled out to get like declared that they have this disability they're disproportionately from the wealthier families so basically, this is just yeah, becoming I mean, yeah. a, a good way to... So I understand why people are angry at that department and angry at HR. Like, it's because they're actually not good for the organization. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, let's go back to your original point and talk okay. about the agnostic issue. Um, you know, let's just for the benefit of all your listeners, let's sketch out RHB a little bit more because it's not just Dave running around with a microphone, you know, talking about being a human being. Um, <laughs> there, are <a> few, <laughs> there are a few aspects to it. So. So you sketched out what already, which is the three intentions, okay? First gear, second gear, third gear. So first gear, narrow self-interest, second gear, extrinsic reward, and third gear, intrinsic reward. Um, you know, 
when you talk to people and, you, you know, uh, whether you're talking from a theological point of view or a philosophical one, and you say, you know, what is the definition of evil? You know, you can go round and around on this one. I, I'm not going to characterize an HR department as evil because, I, in fact, I'm not a big fan of that word. I find it extremely subjective. Uh, too many people these days say anything is evil because it's not my group. Anything yes. outside yeah. my group is evil, right? I mean, the left characterizes the right as evil. The right does it, the left as evil. And if you try and sit there in the, and talk about, uh, you know, both sides have some really interesting points. People call you a fence sitter and ask if you're getting splinters, right? So, so there's this polarization of public discourse, which I don't think is helpful. So what I'm trying to do with RHB is break all that apart. OK, uh, if you talk to the average person on the street, you know what the average person says without a degree in philosophy or politics, they just say, are they hurting anybody? Are they hurting anybody? Yeah. And I think that's actually a really good way to start the concept of, you know, evil, for want of a better word, which is, are they hurting anybody? Um, you know, yeah. my dad used to laugh at, at a kid with a mohawk. OK, look at that. Yeah, look at that kid with a mohawk and he'd shake his head. Well, that makes sense because second gear is behavior that can be explained through incentive systems. So my dad was 30 years in the Canadian military. Okay. Yeah. And so his incentive systems, he was acting very logically in second gear. You know, in the military, we come from the point of very short hair, very neat hair. And when you see a kid walking down the street with a mohawk, there's a reason why my dad would say, look at that kid with that long hair. Now, I don't have to agree with my dad to say what he's well, saying. Well, you're still your dad logical. to some extent, because in that, that episode where you talked about the guy's shoes, the last one, <laughs> and how he didn't he didn't yeah. buff his shoes, that is still very much well, a, a military-inspired, like a, a military kid. Absolutely. and, and yeah. But here's the kick. The kid with the mohawk, is he hurting anybody? No, he's not hurting anybody. So... Let's go back to your example in a company when somebody says, well, all this department is evil. And by the way, it's not just HR. I've heard finance, they have a problem with sales. Sales has a problem with legal. Like most people are pretty logically in second gear, which is there is a rational reason they don't like another department. And it could be inefficiencies. It could be time wasting. It could be lack of leadership. But the bottom line is, I always say is, well, let's look at the incentives of HR or let's look at the incentives of sales. Okay. And once you... Get away from the labels and the sweeping stereotypes. You sit down and go, okay, so what exactly are the incentives of that department? Then a lot of things start becoming clear. For example, I'm not an expert in, in corporate structure, but I have worked in large companies and HR, for the most part, are process driven. Okay. I've worked in risk management and I can tell you right now, the people who, who uh, provide corporate insurance, okay, uh, they get really worried when a company doesn't have good HR policies. Do you know why? Because they open themselves up to lawsuits? Absolutely. Okay, so sexual harassment lawsuits, product liability lawsuits, errors and omissions lawsuits. So unless you have good, sound policies, then yeah, you can open yourself up to a lot of risk. Okay, so um, I will tell you, I was in the military a few years, and we always had this joke about you know, the youngest officer on the ship, we made the morale officer, okay? Which was another word for party planning committee. It was almost a joke that, you know, you call an officer a morale officer because they're the one charged with planning uh, the birthday party for the captain. I've been in companies where people say morale, let's, we'll give that to HR ethics, we'll give that to HR culture, we'll give that to HR. Well, that's silly. That's not HR's problem. That's everybody's issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can I can see that. 
I mean, so how do you encourage? Um, because I definitely, I've, you know, one of the things I tell my students all the time, and it's just, it's something I got from my mom, and it's not scientific. I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know what the, what the real breakdown is, but it's something my my mom always told us, which is that, um, you know, at any given time, ten uh, percent of people are saints. Uh, and so I guess that would be, in your language, that would be sort of people who are in third gear and they're just behaving really just like the best that people can do. Um, and then there's 10% of people who are who are just you know, like assholes and they're, they're sort of like, I guess you would say people in first gear, right? Just behaving in a really selfish, uh, not, not a very kind way. Um, but that most of the time, most people, you know, sort of 80% of people um, are in what you would call second gear. They're sort of reciprocal, right? So they're going to give you what you give them. If you treat them with respect, they will treat you with respect. If you are rude with them, they will be rude with you and so on and so forth. And so this, um, you know, there's some people that even if you are, you treat them horribly, they will respond with kindness, right? And there's some people where even if you treat them, um, you know, really, really well, they will still return with kind of poison and be just nasty with you, right? But most people are reciprocal, and so therefore you should treat people. I mean, another another thing in your system I remember was uh, always assume that everybody's intelligent, right? Which well, I that, think is that beautiful. Part, look. Yeah, well, there's actually two answers to this. So the first part is, um, yeah, your mother's a wise person. Okay. Yes, the only thing <laughs> I would say, yeah, the only thing I would say is, and the biggest mistake people make after they hear one of my talks is, it's just human nature. We want to shortcut and make things easy, John. So they go, well, she's a first gear person, and he's a third gear person. It's like, well, hang on. These are just intentions, they're not labels for people. Okay. So people can shift gears and you can go from, you know, first gear to second or third gear to second or second to third. Yeah. Um, in fact, that that's a really, you know, you're teaching philosophy, you've got a PhD in that subject, you know that people are capable of change. In fact, most most teaching involves damage to ego. That's why kids generally learn more easily because their sense of self isn't fully set up yet. Whereas a grown up, especially those who are older, set in their ways, you know, they don't like having their ego damaged. So sometimes they're often very resistant uh, to, to that kind of damage. And that's why it's harder sometimes to teach an older person new tricks than it is a little kid. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I admire what your mom's saying. The only thing I would tell your mom is, you know, people are capable of, of shifting back and forth. I have a buddy of mine. He always says, you ever notice when you're in a bad mood, you just meet more assholes. Yeah. Yeah. It's cause you are. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cause you're prepared. You're looking for them. Right. Yeah. No, there's and, a, a uh, wonderful, there's a Zen Buddhist proverb that is, that deals with this where there's a wise man sitting in lotus position under a tree and it's along a path that is at the bottom, uh, at the top of a hill and it leads the bottom of the hill is a, a little village. And so there's a traveler that comes along the path and he says, uh, you know, I, I heard that the people here uh, in this village are really cheap and really stingy and they're unfriendly to strangers and they're, you know, he's just really kind of got all these negative stereotypes about the 
villagers in this particular place. And, uh, and the wise man just sort of shakes his head and says, uh, you will find exactly what you have heard. You will find exactly what you expect. And so then yeah. he goes off. And then, you know, about a half an hour later, another uh, traveler comes along and he's got a big smile on his face. And he says, oh, I'm so psyched about going to this village. I've heard the people are so amazing and they're so like, you know, so friendly and so kind and generous and just like really, you know, give your shirt off the back, really nice people. And uh, is is that true? Then he says, uh, you will find exactly what you've heard. Yeah. You'll find exactly what you expect. And my mom would tell us that. She's like, you know, if you go into a situation with like a crappy attitude, like, yeah, you you will kind of just by your body language and your tone of voice and the way you're you're going to, elicit those reactions for people from people so no that that's absolutely true and i don't you know she she never told us that you know the 10 percent, 10 percent, 80 percent. she never said that people were fixed she said that everybody is one of those everybody's you know if you're if you just got a big promotion or you're in love or something right. amazing is happening in your life you just think you're just your kid was just born you're probably a saint at that moment and you know nothing can touch you you're invincible right you're so happy right and then if your mother just died and you just got served with divorce papers and you just got fired or something bad just happened to you like you're probably you know the asshole on that day <laughs> like you're you're in a horrible mood right but her well, point her point was that most of the time most of us are in what you would call second gear. And uh, as you said once in one of your talks, you know, uh, second gear makes the world go round, right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, politics, you know, most polit most uh, world governments work in second gear, which is, uh, you know, uh, they act rationally according to their incentive systems. Um, uh, you know, but here's the really interesting part. I think as human beings, we want to have good and evil. We want to put people in categories. And I'm not saying there's people out there who aren't um, deep in narrow self-interest. Okay. If you think of people who are doing really, really, really bad things, um, it tends to be people who are, well, you know, about the whole scale of narcissism and it ends up with a highly functioning sociopath, right? Mm -hmm. So people who essentially have very little conscience and just do what they want to do without any regard to other people. I would, I would call that entrenched hardcore first gear behavior. Okay. Um, and yeah, you've got a few people out there who are, for want of a better word, saints, but the most of us are just human beings acting, you know, rationally. Now you asked before about assume everyone's intelligent. So this popped into my, you know, most of the most wisdom, John, comes to me through other people. I mean, uh, everybody told me about, I don't know, 12, 14 years ago, I had to meet this uh, lady who owned a life science company in Burlington, Ontario, and her name was Dr. Lisa Studnicki. And they said, you know, you keep talking about when you're in third gear, people say you're amazing, you're a good guy. Um, and uh, so they said, you know, you got to meet this lady. So finally, I met her. We had a coffee at a Starbucks and I said. Somebody tells me, you know, uh, you're one of these pretty amazing leaders because that's a real challenge. Every CEO, John, every every uh, uh, president wants all their employees in third gear. They want them out there being kind and compassionate, doing the right thing. See, second gear would be in compliance with job description, right? Honest mm -hmm. day's work for an honest day's pay. Third gear would be going above and beyond. Uh, so I said, how do you do it? And she said, well. I have these three things I believe them. I have them written down at home and at work, and they've allowed me to be professionally successful and personally successful. And I said, well, what are the three? And she told me them, and I went, wow. Can I use that in my talk? She goes, sure. I said, well, 
Okay, what were they? Okay, so sh- 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 I said, can I use them on my talk? She said, sure. Um, I said, I'll give you credit. She said, no, it's okay. And I said, no, no, I'll give you credit. So I I put her name in my talk for the next 10 years, telling people. I call it the, the code of the real human being. So the first one is assume everyone's intelligent. The second one is have passion for what you do. And the third is get over yourself. Okay. That's, uh, okay. those are fantastic teachings. <laughs> yeah. Those I mean, are it's pretty, pretty encompassing, right? I mean, uh, and by the way, that's not assume everyone's in third gear or assume everyone has my best interest at heart. That simply means, you know, it's an, it's an elegant way of saying don't prejudge people and don't put them in a category based on their age, their gender, their skin color, their nationality, or any other label you can figure out. You know, just give them credit for having a brain before you pre-assign them a set of attributes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second one's pretty self-evident, which is, you know, whatever you do, try and have some passion for it. There's nothing worse than you meet somebody who has no passion for what they do. And the third one is, you know, don't let your ego get in the way of your performance. Yeah, it's funny because those three things map on... I was just sort of thinking like in comparative religions and different sort of religious systems and philosophies and stuff like that. Those three map on really, really well to, uh, you know, what Max Weber thought of as the the Protestant work ethic. You know, the idea that, uh, especially in the, the Calvinist flavor, where you were supposed to um, believe in the idea that whatever position you have in society, you're, that's your calling. So if you're a street sweeper, you should be like, you shouldn't just be doing your job um, as if like, you should be doing it like you're, you're sweeping the street because, you know, Jesus is going to, (laughs) the second coming of Christ is going to, and he's going to like walk right down your street and it's got to be absolutely perfect. And you should do all of your, your job, whatever, however small your job is you know, in the, in sort of, in terms of status and things like that, you should do it to the utmost. And then you should do it in a selfless fashion and that you should encounter everybody else as if they are a a soul, like another human being that is just as inherently worthwhile as, as you are. Right. So that, and I, his argument was in, um, the, the Protestant, ethic and the spirit of capitalism was that this particular um, religious system, which was set up for purely religious reasons, it didn't have any uh, any obvious temporal applications, happened to make adherence of that religion very well suited to success in a capitalist economy. Because if you, yeah. if you yeah. behaved like that, yeah. In a capitalist economy, you would you would tend to rise to the top because you would be noticed as being a superior worker, and you know, and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, you, you know, you're going to smile at this, but um, I've had people come up after my talk going, "Are you Hindu? Are you Jewish? Are you Christian? Are you Muslim?" And I know what they're asking. They're asking, "Your stuff is in our holy books." And mm-hmm. uh, you know, my response is, "It's in everybody's holy books." Most spiritual tomes have first, second, and third gear written within them. Um, and most sins, for want of a better term, aside from, you know, food restrictions or clothing restrictions, are, are are telling people not to be in first gear. You know, don't hurt other people for your own narrow self-interest. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, 
so that you, you know, when you talk about breaking down silos or breaking through barriers, I mean, I've lectured in the Southern US. I had a guy come up to me one time and he goes, boy, that was a good talk. He said, you know, all our executive, our company are, uh, we're Republican, we're white, we're Southern Baptists. And I said, so let me ask you a question. I said, do you think a Democrat in third gear has more in common with a Republican in third gear than they do with a Republican or a Democrat in first gear? And he went, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you see this massive polarization between the left and the right, but here you got a guy who's very proud of his, his, his beliefs, his political and spiritual beliefs, but even he could recognize, you know, your intention and your character breaks through all your tribal identity. Mm-hmm. But what about, I mean, just to, I guess this is a kind of a random example, but what about like a, like a terrorist or a suicide bomber or somebody who, um, is, you know, flying an airplane into the world trade center or something like that, or the Pentagon, like that, that's somebody that in terms of their intention, they're not behaving in a selfish, they're not in first gear because they, they clearly, you know, it's not in your, it's not in your self-interest to, to blow yourself up at that. Um, they're not behaving in a reciprocal kind of second gear way um, to, in their mind. I mean, what they're doing is horrible, but in their mind, they think they're doing the right thing. Right. I sure. mean, there's all these, there's all these, like I've read all these like accounts of, of, for instance, um, of, of German SS officers who worked in concentration camps and they talked about, um, they, they gave an explicitly sort of, I guess they were, they would refer to it as a Kantian justification for what they were doing. I guess you would call it a, kind of a third gear justification for what they were doing. But they said, look, I, I found working in the camps personally repellent. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I'm not a sadist or anything like that. Um, but I felt like it was the right thing to do. And so they're doing this thing that is absolutely horrible and disgusting, right? And But they're doing it, they feel like they're, they're, in terms of their intentions, they feel like they're doing it for a higher purpose. Sure. Sure. So, so let's put our, uh, let's put our, what I call our third gear empathy hats on for a sec. Okay. And let's replace quick judgment with it, with a uh, deep kind of, uh, uh, attempt to understand. Okay. A uh, long time ago, I worked for a medical device company. I was the top Sonicare toothbrush salesman in Canada. You ever heard of Sonicare? <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay, Sonicare is a sonic cleaning electric toothbrush. And I was the top Sonicare sales guy in Canada. I love that toothbrush, man. I used it at home. It was fantastic. And you're going, where the heck is Dave going with this story, right? But here's the thing. As our company grew and morphed and got more successful, uh, we started getting into dental implants. And we sold uh, implants that screwed into people's jaws and and uh, bone material that augmented the native bone. And I went into ours. And, but I, I missed my Sonicare days. You know why? Because Why? I miss prevent, I miss preventing the problem. Okay, uh, brushing your teeth prevents all the problems down the line where your teeth are falling out and you got to get implants. So when I look at the example that you just gave me, okay, about the guy in the concentration camp, um, I think, okay, what led that guy to that moment in his life where he's shoving people in ovens? Okay, and I will tell you, I lived in West Germany. I went to high school there. My dad was in the military, and we went and visit the site of a concentration camp when I was 13 years old. Wow. So the, gen the genesis 
of what I teach today started when I was 13 years old, just this young, dumb Canadian boy who, you know, um, I, we went to this beautiful country, cuckoo clocks and black forest and nice food and great people. And I'm like, I don't get it. How can this country with these really nice people, how could they shove other people into ovens? Um, and I didn't really understand why that could have happened until about three years later. Um, there was this book that I got at the library. It was in English, but when I was 11 years old, were you a big fan of um, Dungeons and Dragons or Lord of the Rings or any of that stuff, John? Lord of the Rings, yes. Dungeons and Dragons, no. Okay. But probably in your heart, you love the old eternal struggle about good versus evil, don't sure, you? That's what, that's sure. what Lord of the Rings is all about, man. Yeah. You got to hate the orcs and you got to love the uh, the hobbits and all the good ones, right? So yeah. any, good, any good screenwriter will write a movie about good versus evil and good usually triumphs over evil. So there was this book that I think I got in the library. It was an old beat up paperback book. I wish I could remember the name of it, but this is like uh, years before Lord of the Rings came out in the movie. I don't know when Tolkien wrote the original book, but this was a... 1960s, kind of a, I think. Was it really? Okay. So this was, I never saw the date on the book, but it was a very kind of short little book, but it was designed to appeal to a kid like me because I was 12, 13. I was getting into science fiction. Basically, the plot was you got these villagers who live in this little village in the Black Forest. And they're brave little villagers, kind of like hobbits, okay? Though well, they didn't call them hobbits, but they're just villagers doing their thing. But in the forest lived these evil creatures, okay? And they would slink out of the forest at night, and they would do obscene things to the women, and they catch the children in the village, and they'd eat them. You know, it's the old Hansel and Gretel story, right? And you eat mm -hmm. that stuff up when you're a kid. Anyway, at the end of the story, the villagers all band together. They went to the castle. They pleaded the king for help. And the king sent, you know, a bunch of the brave knights out. And there was this massive battle at the end. Well, need to say the good guys beat the bad guys. So it was kind of like, like the Lord of the Rings movie where you had this massive battle at the end. And the knights beat all the, uh, the creatures in the forest. You with me so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's the rest of the story. I'm packing to go to University of Guelph, like in 1976. And I'd read this book cover to cover about a dozen times. One of my favorite books. And I thought, do I take this to university with me? And then I realized there's three or four pages after the table of contents at the end that I never read. I just assume it was, you know, something about other books you could buy from the same author. So I flipped to the back and I see the word Adolf Hitler. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And then I realized it's a translation. The book was a translation. And the guy who'd written the translation was saying the original book was in German. It was given to the youth of Germany in the 30s to teach them about the dangers of the undermensch, the, un the non-humans, the under-humans. And those creatures in the forest basically represented Jews and people who had Gypsies physical mental and stuff like that. And, yeah. yeah. And I'm reading this thing, John, and I'm like, I would have made a good Hitler youth. I would have. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not kidding you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I know exactly. If you, I had, yeah. enough, if you get a kid early enough, you know, whether it's a, a, a bomber, or, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them. But so when I see people online, you know, throwing that Nazi word around, I know they're just doing it to separate us from them. And they're the bad guys. And we're the we're the brave knights. But I'm thinking you get anybody young enough and you teach them that their culture is under threat from another group of people. Yeah, you can get people to do pretty lousy things. Yeah. Well, have you ever read uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, Understanding How no. Good People Are Divided Over Politics and Religion? 
No, I have not. Yeah, it's really, really good. But he he basically goes into all of the, like how our brains work and how uh, when we feel that our group is under threat or, you know, we sort of, all these recent additions to the brain in the prefrontal cortex, which are responsible for, um, you know, everything that you would call the third gear, like empathy, uh, ability to see past kind of prejudices, to behave altruistically, all those things, all the good stuff. Uh, when we feel that we're under threat um, in an existential way and our group is under threat, we default to tribalism. We default to uh, good and evil thinking into demonization, into all these things. And and he, he explains very clearly, like, why this makes sense, right? That this, you know, if you, um, you know, one example you know, is, is, let's say you are walking with your group uh, 150,000 years ago um, somewhere in the, you know, the steppes in the Eurasian, and, like, out of the bush, this saber-toothed tiger comes and kind of grabs like one of your friends and just like runs off and like you hear your friend being eaten, you know, and you, well then in the future, absolutely anything that looks like a saber toothed tiger, anything that like has similar colorations, similar, you, if you see that in the grass, you're automatically going to assume the worst and, you know, run or, or arm yourself or get and like, so it demonization and, sort of it, making these like conclusions about the worst and overreacting. It makes sense for most of our history uh, as a species. It's just only recently when we live in mass societies with people with uh, a lot of difference and stuff like that, suddenly that kind of stereotyping and that, that kind of sort of good and evil thinking is no longer very adaptive right but for most of our history as a species it was very adaptive like it worked uh, it worked perfectly well but but that that book you were talking about my my sort of the first time i had the experience you're talking about i remember it very clearly it was um a friend of mine had recommended as a teenager and recommended reading this book called uh, crime and punishment by dostoevsky and uh for those of you who've who've read the novel, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, those of you who haven't, I won't ruin it for you. But suffice it to say that Dostoevsky's a genius, and he basically does everything that a really good writer does to make you identify with the main character, like really, really soon on. Like you identify with this guy, you totally feel like like you have a lot in common with him. So it's sort of like what you were talking about in some of your things, how you try and establish like rapport with people by finding common ground and things like that. He, he's a brilliant writer. So he gets you to identify with this main character. And then early on in the book, this main character does something absolutely terrible, like really, really, really terrible. And what's so powerful is that as you're reading it, especially if you're like a more of a, a younger reader it it's like i felt like i was going to throw up i felt so sick because i felt like i had done it 
it's like you saying, like, after reading that book, I was like, oh, my God, I could have been a Hitler youth. Like, I could have been a Nazi. Like, I, I read that, and I was like, oh. and suddenly, like, it becomes harder to demonize um, criminals who do really horrible things because you see that you have those capacities even within yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, there's that, you know, there's a, I call it second-gear humor, okay? So what's that old maxim? Uh, the definition of a uh, Republican is a Democrat who got mugged, and the definition of a Democrat is a Republican who got arrested. <laughs> I've never heard that version of it. I always heard it yeah. was, uh, I always heard it like a, a neoconservative was a liberal who's been mugged by reality, and um, and a libertarian was a conservative who's been arrested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I've never heard that one. Well, but. it's interesting. Look, I mean, whenever I start getting discouraged about the nature of, you know, this kind of tribal behavior, modern society, you know what gives me, you know, what recharges my batteries? I'll just go on to Facebook and, you know, whether it's an upworthy video or a meme that shows an act of, of kindness and compassion. And I look at how many likes, John, are on that. And sometimes it's over a million people have liked this example of what I call third gear behavior. Okay. Yeah. You know, and, and many times it's many, it's a, it's even more than that. And I'm like, okay, so there's a hunger out there for a lot of people who are sick and tired of this, you know, people either into the classroom throwing rocks at each other and calling each other names. Um, in my experience, most people around the world want the same thing. They want a roof over their head, food on the table, education for their kids and a little enjoyment on the side. And that's pretty well lit. Okay. Mm -hmm. We can throw these tribal names at everybody. Um, Look, I mean, you alluded to it a little bit. I use the highway as an analogy because a lot of people drive cars. So, you know, you're on a highway, bumper to bumper traffic. Somebody's trying to merge in front of you. If you're in first gear, you don't let them in. If you're in second gear, you let them in, but you want your freaking wave. You want your freaking thank you, right? Yeah. And they better get your wave, otherwise you're not going to let them in anymore. And if you're in third gear, you wave them in. And if they wave, it's great. And if they don't wave, that's okay too. You don't get upset because you didn't get the wave because you didn't do it for the wave. If you did it for the wave, that'd be second gear. You did it because you're trying to be, you know, a good person and it's the right thing to do. Now, third gear is hard to sustain because we generally take on the, the behaviors of people around us. That's called social proof, right? So we look at what the neighbors are doing and we tend to do the same thing. Um, you talked about, you know, how we're wired evolutionarily to be tribal. I, I use this example in my talks. I have a picture of a Hummer. Uh, vehicle tailgating a car. I took this picture like 10 years ago, John, and I always show it to audiences. And I go, okay, so let me show you the four stages that you're going to go through before you build, you know, a dislike for the other group. Okay. Uh, a tribe or, or whatever else. So step one is, is reaction. You'll see somebody in your company or in your school doing something wrong and you think idiot. Okay. So when I see this vehicle tailgating somebody else, I go, look at that guy in first gear, idiot. Second is identification. So idiot, idiot in a Hummer. Okay. Everybody <laughs> with me so far? And they all nod, they all laugh. And I go, okay. Third is, uh, is generalization. So idiot, idiot in a Hummer. Therefore, everybody in a Hummer is an idiot. Right. And then four is confirmation bias. Three weeks later, you see another Hummer. They're not tailgating. They aren't doing anything wrong. They're obeying all the rules of the road. And you go, hey, there goes another idiot. <laughs> now, this this works on a personal and business level. It's like, you know, uh, you know, um, on a, on a business level, it might be, you know, you used HR as an example earlier on in this podcast. So, uh, 
I say to you, John, what's the matter? You go, oh, HR just really grinds my gears, man. You know, uh, Jean called me from HR and he's not going to give me that extra time I needed. John, HR, all those idiots in HR don't trust anybody in HR. So one aspect of tribalism is we judge the others by the worst behavior of the people in that group, but we judge our own group by the best behavior of the people in our group. Yeah. Right? Yep. And we do that even in our in our in our intimate relationships. So we it's it's even almost, you know, it's sort of what you're talking about, but ramped up. So in our in our marriages or close relationships, I'm sure you've probably seen this research as well. I I find it absolutely fascinating. I in my my good and evil class, I I go over this research a lot and um, they've they've gone to uh, businesses that are owned by by two people or three people or four people, five people. And they ask them, you know, confidentially say, okay, now be totally honest with me. What percentage of the work do you think you do? Right. And then I'll say, yeah. well, actually I, I do like my, my partner's kind of a slacker. I, I do like yeah. about 65% of the work and he does about 35. Right. Uh, and the thing is, is what's amazing is they've, done this research for thousands and thousands and thousands of businesses. And guess what? The number never adds up to a hundred <laughs> and it never comes up to less than a hundred. And in fact, the more owners there are, the, the higher the number is, yeah. which means like the more people are involved in the process, the more diluted collectively they are. So everybody thinks they're, they're, contributing more than they're actually contributing right and then if you if you check out in relationships if you ask married couples how much of the housework do you do how much of the you know child care do you do people you get the same people always you know we we supposedly have this epidemic of self-esteem bullshit actually like we have an epidemic of like way too much self-esteem like everybody overestimates how nice they are how much they're contributing. So it, I think it was in Sweden where they actually tried to test this out and they, you know, only the Swedish would go along with this. Um, <laughs> they had like cameras in their houses 24-7 seeing who actually was doing the laundry and the dishes and the cleaning and all the rest. Yeah. And, uh, and so they were able to actually, in a very precise way, say, no, you're actually doing 62% of the, you know, whatever. Um and what's amazing is that if, you know, let's say in a typical heterosexual couple, let's say she actually was doing 62% of the housework and, and the childcare. She never says she's doing 62%. Like in the self-report, she says, oh, God, I have to do everything. Like she thinks she's doing 90 right? <laughs> and yeah, if, he's doing, if he's doing 30, he thinks he's doing half. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and that makes total sense in terms of, you know, for her, me is my group, my team, my tribe. Yes. Right. So I'm I'm identified myself with the best behaviors of my group. Look, I mean, do you know, last week I gave a talk to salespeople. OK, so you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, Dave, I thought you're talking about a philosophy now. Nah, but those three gears can be applied for sales, leadership, networking, innovation. I mean, think about it. if you don't if you meet somebody who doesn't know how to sell. People don't know how to sell. We'll usually sell in first gear. 
In other words, they will sell in narrow self-interest. Okay. And that's where the bad connotation of salesman comes into it, you know, cheating, lying, whatever it takes. So yeah. what we're doing, because I'm not in sales and I see a salesman, I will attach first gear to that entire group of people based on one interaction with a salesman in first gear. So I will put the whole, you know, first gear label on that whole group of salespeople over there. Right. Um, I used to talk to dentists and show dentists how to sell. Well, they didn't even like the S word. We're not salespeople, <laughs> we're dentists, right? Well, that was actually the origin of our HP job because I used to say, look, selling is not the issue. You want your patients to actually be healthy and happy and, and sometimes they're going to need to buy stuff, right? And they go, yeah. I said, so let's break it down. It's not selling that's the problem. It's the intention you're in when you sell. You can sell in first gear, second gear, or third gear. And if you sell in first gear, yeah. They're going to say, ah, oh, that dentist, they just want another vacation or a new car. But if you sell in third gear, they'll say, wow, my dentist is amazing. So yeah. we need to show you how to sell in the right, with the right intention. Therefore, your reputation will grow. So that was actually the origin of RHP. I mean, even on a leadership level, everybody wants a boss in third gear. They don't want a boss in first gear. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, it's funny. Really, it's it, funny you say that because my, my yeah. cousin made a career change couple years ago and she decided to become a real estate agent right and it was a big switch and she very quickly uh you know within a few years was like rising through the ranks like crazy and she's making like like tons of money she's doing really really well and i asked her well you know what's what's your trick (laughs) she said i mean to use your language she basically said well you know the vast majority of people in in real estate they're always in first gear they're just they're so sleazy like they lie they they don't tell the whole truth they're just trying to make the sale and so they will like you know leave out vital information people will buy the place and then find out that there was foundational problems and they'll say like oh my god this is costing me 60 grand to fix this and they'll say well if you read the fine print it was in there but of course you didn't make sure they saw that before they bought it, right? And so she just went into the job um, for various reasons that have to do with the fact that she's just a really decent person. But also she was she was going into the job for a number of reasons, part of which is she didn't want to be in a cubicle all the time. She wanted to deal with people. She wanted to have the human interaction and stuff like that. She wasn't, and she was, com- put it this way, she's comfortable for money. So she wasn't like, you know, hungry to just make every sale all the time. And so because of that, she was genuinely what you would say, like kind of in third gear all the time. She was like actually trying to get the person the best deal possible and was being totally honest, like as if like she's selling this to a friend or a family member or something like that. And because of that, she didn't always necessarily make the most money on each uh, deal, but that person would go and like fucking tell every single person they know, like their friends or family, everybody they work with. Yeah. You go see her. Like she'll hook you up. Like she's so awesome. Like she's, you know, she went out of her way. And then, you know, on the, on the other end too, like if somebody wanted her to sell a house for them and, they would say like you know i want to ask 450,000 for this place she would yeah. do like her research and be like no your place is not worth 450 
Right. Like your place is worth three eighty five. Well, can't we just ask four fifty? And then like she's like, no, I don't haggle. She goes, if you look at my record, all of my sales are within five percent of asking. I'm really proud of that. That means the price has integrity. That means the price is actually the price. Right. I don't play that game. If you want me to represent you, we're putting it at three eighty five. It's not going out at four fifty. Or find somebody else. But I'm not doing that. And yeah. because of that, you know, what you would call yeah. kind of selling in that third gear mindset, right. she's making way more money than all the idiots that are just right. like, that are yeah. actually, you know, being sleazy. Like well, way look, more I, money. I, <laughs> look, I got, I got a friend of mine who's a senior vice president at major Canadian bank, and she took over a new uh, uh, area where uh, sales were down at the bank. Okay, on a retail level, you know, when you go to the bank and... Sure. Uh, and the tellers are suggesting, you know, would you like a mortgage with that? Would you like a Visa card with that? <laughs> right. Um, yes. And, you know, a lot of people hate the add-on sales. Right. And, uh, but second gears, a lot of these employees uh, of this particular bank, you know, to their in their defense, they joined the bank because they wanted to help people. And a lot of people want to help people. Um, and they felt pressured by the bank to meet their numbers. OK. And that's a challenge sometimes where you have somebody, you know, the boss is telling you, you got to sell these extra products and their heart's not in it. And they feel like, you know, I'm being forced to do this. So she went in there and what she said to the staff was, look, I got your back. What I want you to do is I want you to be she didn't say third gear, but she was actually suggesting they do a deep dive into helping the customer. OK, to really take a look at the customer and go, OK. Think about not from our point of view, but from the customer's point of view. Is there anything that would expose them to risk, anything that would save them money, anything that would help them in the long term? I just want you to be helpers. Okay. Don't worry about the numbers. Just go out there and be of value to people. Answer their questions, you know, and see if there's anything we have that can help them, you know, invest more wisely, whatever else. But I got your back. Don't worry about the. And you know what? Sales took off. Wow. Yeah. They were selling at third gear, but they didn't consider themselves, well, they didn't use the word first or second or third gear, but they just said, I just want to go out there and help people. I want to be of value to people. Now, when you get an empowered, inspired workforce that says, wow, you know, my boss has is, is got my back and I'm, I just want to be there as a helper to people. Uh, then you got somebody across the wicket saying to somebody, look, I know you got a lot of your money sitting in this big kind of checking account, but you get probably get better interest rate if you move some of it over to a savings account. So you got that 75 year old lady going, really? Yeah, yeah. So this here's the difference. And, you know, you could probably make a little extra money every week if you move that money over there. Wow. You know, and that, and that reinforced what you're talking about, which is reputation and trust doesn't come from second gear. It comes from third gear. Yeah. Yeah, right. I, I remember um, a friend of mine, actually, I got to make sure I don't say his name, <laughs> but uh, he'll probably be listening to this podcast, but uh, but he's uh, he's been in sales for a long time, and he's just got like a lot of integrity, just a very, I'm not just saying that because he's my friend, he, he's got, he's just like got a lot of integrity, and he had a, a situation a few years ago where um, they had a change of owners, and the new owners wanted them to like push um, a product which was of an inferior quality and it was overpriced and you know it was trying to get them to to do this and he um, he basically said, "I know I've built up these relationships over the space of you know ten, fifteen, twenty years with all of these contractors and builders and stuff like that in the Montreal area and 
I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not gonna like screw them over and ruin my reputation with those people and those relationships just so you can like push this inferior product that you've been getting all masked from from China in the last year. So he refused to do it and uh, didn't sell any of that stuff. Uh, and at a certain point, he got called into uh, the office by one of the, you know, by the top brass and saying, how come you haven't been, you know, your sales are great, but how come you haven't been pushing this product? Our, you know, our, our profit on this product is like through the roof and you'd be getting a lot of that as, you know, commissions and things like that. And so he said, no, I'm not going to do this. Like, if you want to get rid of me. And uh, one of the people there who actually really had a lot of history in, in sales and things like that said, you know what, actually, um, you're, you're totally right. And it's important. Uh, what you're showing here is exactly what like really next level salespeople do, which is like, you're placing the interests of the customer even above your organization. Like you're trying to end. Uh, and so he, he walked out of there with a raise. Well, like a fifty thousand dollar raise. <laughs> like, well, look, and you look, know, big, because they recognized, yeah. okay, this is actually really a, a fantastic salesperson, right? Well, it reflects on the company too, right? Because think about we talked about generalities before. That actually works both ways. If I encounter somebody from your group in first gear, I tend to think everybody in your group's in third in first gear. But all of a sudden, if I meet somebody in your group who's a good guy. And then when I meet somebody else from your school or your company and she's in third gear and then I meet somebody else who's in third gear, I start to, I generalize as well. I go, wow, everybody over in that company, they're all good people over there. And that's what every CEO or president wants. They want a third gear reputation. Look, this, this talk I gave last week, John, guy came up to me after the talk and he goes, he goes, you know, I've been on many, many different sales training programs in my life. I said, yeah. He goes, you have distilled down the whole concept of reputation in this one beautiful language. I said, oh, thanks. He goes, uh, I heard the sales trainer. His name was uh, Floyd uh, Wickman. I said, yeah. He goes, he had this line. He used to say the con man and the sales professional use the same techniques. The only difference is the intent. Really? I don't think that the only difference is the intent. Well, think about this for a sec, okay? So um, when I when I speak to audiences, I go, look, uh, reputation made up of four things, okay? Proficiency, reliability, um, personality, and intent. So somebody who is a con man, you know, which is trying to sell something in first gear, they're going to be, they're going to know their product knowledge really well. They might be very personable. Most con men are really personable people, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, uh, they have the reliability factor because they you think they're giving you exactly what you need. But what they're missing is the intentions. They have their best interests at heart, not yours. They're trying to take your money and leave you with nothing. So um, when I speak to to groups of people, I go, look, I'm not going to give you, you know, knowledge, experience or skill. That's you're a finance audience. You're an HR audience. You're a sales audience. You know, you're a high school class. I'm not going to give you all that stuff. What I am going to talk about is, is self-awareness and intention. And I want you to have, you know, what do you want to call it? A conscience. So when you turn on your computer or you get in your car or you go to class, you got to say to yourself when you sit down, am I in gear one, two or three? Yeah. It's funny. We were talking about this just before we went on, uh, on the air, uh, about Jim Jones, who, um, there's this podcast that I absolutely love, um, by Daryl Cooper, this guy out of LA, 
uh, and he's called uh, the Martyr Martyr Made Podcast. And his new series at the moment is all about Jim Jones. And it's very interesting because, you know, the first three episodes have just been going into, like, his background. But he was um, a, a, a master salesman. Like, he, he sold everything from – I'm not making this up. He yeah. went and sold monkeys. Yeah. He sold monkeys door-to-door. Like, right. he would literally go around – uh, on a, a bicycle with a cage full of monkeys, and he would sell people monkeys at thirty nine ninety nine each. And this is in like the nineteen, you know, whatever nineteen sixties, fifties, sixties, and stuff like that. And he became like a a motivational speaker and a traveling preacher and stuff like that. And this guy was in third gear. All the time, almost all the time. He set up these soup kitchens, which uh, were open not once a week, for three meals a day, seven days a week. And they, he was able to get enough like volunteers to work in these things. He got like funding for it, and he never pocketed any of the money. Uh, he was like a very, very altruistic person. He was a big kind of uh, fighting for social justice and for civil rights and all these different things for a long time. And, of course, well, we know how the story ended. Uh, it ended with drink the Kool-Aid and, um, you know, killing all of these people and doing all these things. But he was able to to get to that point. He built this huge following by being, like, actually, you know, doing a lot of really great things. Sure, sure. And look, I mean, uh, one thing you and I have to remember is, uh, you know, we can talk. Sometimes people wonder, why did Russians, you know, why do some Russian, Russians still yearn for Stalin if he killed so many people? Um, you know, why? Uh, I have a friend in Italy and uh, her father, unfortunately, passed away recently, but he still listened to Mussolini's speeches. OK, and they used to make him cry. Wow. Um, well, why not? Mussolini straightened out the system. He got rid of the mafia. He made the trains run on time. He brought back national pride and honor. He built up the army. I mean, think about all those things for a second, okay? If you're unemployed and you don't feel that the world treats you well and your tribe's under attack, and here comes a strong leader and builds all this stuff up again, okay, the guy may end up taking you to war or bombing other countries or whatever else. But, you know, that's why I always say I don't believe in good and bad people. I believe in the better parts of people. <laughs> like Lincoln, the the better angels of our nature. Well, this is the thing. And I mean, look, I even checked out rate, ratemyteacher.com when I knew you were going to interview me. Okay. I don't know if you've ever looked at your, uh, your ratings on rateyourteacher.com. Okay. I have not. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, this is going to come as a revelation or maybe not to you, but you know, the rule of, of what I call, you know, the good guy is you can't call yourself one. Otherwise everybody put up a shingle that says, trust me. <laughs> you know, and then every real, every real turn make money. Right. I mean, I always, I always make way yeah. laugh. I go, you know, we had a, a nightclub and a guy walks up to you and he goes, hi, I'm Dave. Trust me. Yeah. And they always laugh because as soon as the guy says, trust me, the last thing they're going to do is, is trust him. Right. So yeah. you can't say I'm in third gear. You got to act like you're in third gear. That's why in the world of marketing, third party endorsements are really important because the perceived enemy of marketing is first gear. It's native, natural self-interest. So I looked at your, you know, rateyourteacher.com, and I've been on this site for years, but 
Well, first question is overall, how would you rate John's experience? Uh, how would you rate your experience with John's classes? And they have little uh, pie graphs here, but 90% of students rated your classes excellent, okay? And 10% rated above average. So you got 100% of either above average or excellence. The this second is, one's uh, probably- good news. <laughs> second one's actually more reflective of third gear, which is, because remember, second gear is compliance with your job description, okay? Yeah. You get paid to teach these students. But the second question is, is probably a lot more revealing of third gear, which is, is the teacher available for extra help during study halls, lunchtime, before or after school? And uh, 60% said almost always, and 30% said uh, often. Okay, so you got a 90% really good rating of going above and beyond just what you're paid to do. Huh. That's good. <laughs> and, that, and that's not you walking around with a t-shirt saying, love me, man. You know, trust yeah. me, I'm number one, right? Um, so that's why, you know. Well, that, that's surprising because I find usually the people who who fill out, who go, who take the time to go to a site like that or, yeah. or fill out, it's usually the people who are had a really bad experience or a really yep. good experience. Like the people who just had like a eh you know, meh experience. Like I probably, you know, I don't know how many, uh, how many ratings there are on there, but I can almost guarantee you that, you know, in the, the years that I've been, I've, I've taught thousands and thousands and thousands of students over the years. I mean, like very large. I, I would guess that the number of students that take the time to fill out something like that is maybe tops couple hundred. So it's a yeah. it's a small little sliver of the the really really pleased or really pissed. <laughs> right? well, yeah, I mean you go to a fast food restaurant and you eat a burger, you're not going online filling out an evaluation of the burger. But if you go to a fast food restaurant and there's a cockroach in the burger, yeah. you're probably going online, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or if you have a really good experience, like I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm one of those like weird people where I, if I have a good experience, you know, anything from a hotel to a restaurant to with a business, I will actually go, or even my bank. Like if I have, I will go online uh, and fill out the long thing and just say what a fantastic experience i had and i'll name the people that were really nice and like what they did and i i do that like a lot (laughs) so um if i have a bad experience i sort of 99 times out of 100 i'll just put it out of my mind and just like because i can't be bothered um but but i do i do go out of my way to to try and be thankful because i just like the kind of person that makes me, I find it just makes me like, I feel happier and it just makes me, puts me in a better frame of mind to be, to be thankful of, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not into positive thinking. I don't like that bullshit where you're like yeah. thanking for stuff that doesn't exist or, but when there's something that's concrete and real and somebody has actually done you a solid, I think, you know, if you can be thankful about that, it, Look, I mean, you, you just validated the last part of third gear, and I didn't tell it to you. I just talked about the three elements. But the last part of third gear is you're back on that highway, and you're trying to merge into traffic, and somebody lets you in. 
And I always say to audiences, so what do you always do? And somebody says, you always wave. I go, all right. The hardest part about being in third gear is you, you express appreciation, you express thanks, although you may not get it from other people. So you're the type of guy who waves thank you when somebody lets you into traffic. Um, sometimes you get it from other people, sometimes you don't. So you just said what you're telling me, John, is and I, you know, I just make this a habit when I get really good service and somebody does me a solid, I always wave thank you. I, I go online and I write something. So I didn't invent the gears. Okay. Well, I invented the numbers and the, and the terminology, but as you know, you know, being a philosophy guy, this stuff's been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But I, I do think expressing gratitude as part of your daily regiment is something that does increase your sense of self-worth, self-esteem, your outlook on the world. Um, but our brains tend to lend themselves to what's wrong versus what's going right. Yeah, well, there's a there's a guy. He's a friend of mine, and he's a regular listener on the podcast. You'd probably be listening to this one, uh, but Christian Christian Gravener, and he's he's like that. You know, he has very good relationships with a lot of people, and he has a he has a great marriage, and he has he just he just clearly kind of does the whole life thing pretty well. And I remember asking him once. I said, so. Um, you seem to kind of have a lot of things. You know, I'm, I'm not saying he's a saint or anything. He's not. He's not perfect. He's like a. He's like a guy. But like he just. He does things way better than a lot of other people. So, uh, and I asked him. I'm like, so what is your? Do you have like a trick, you know, for um, yeah for yeah. making this? And he said, um, I just try and. Um, I mean, my question at that point was specifically with regard to his marriage because he has a he has a very very good marriage, and he's had, you know, you've been married what twenty two years, uh, twenty four, twenty four. Oh wow, uh, he's uh, he's you know he's up there too. I think he's up around like twenty three, twenty three, twenty two, um, but and he has a very good marriage, and he said, well, I just, I. For me, the key is just like gratitude, like just really saying thank you. Um, and and he goes, don't don't give like general thank yous, like thank you for being you or crap like that. He's like, yeah, like yeah. specifically <laughs> when somebody does does you a solid, when they somebody yeah. does a, when your wife does something really nice, even if it's small, just make a point of saying thank you and being really yep. really thankful and doing that, you know, with your children and with your, and he said, that just has such an amazing effect because it just sets up this, this really good relationship of like people feeling like this warm glow that I'm acknowledged and I'm appreciated. And so they're more likely to acknowledge you and appreciate you. And then it just, it just creates all these like really nice, like really sweet feedback loops. Well, your friend, your friends. So I'd be interested in finding out, is it Chris, your friend? Christian. Yeah. Christian. I'd be interested in finding out, uh, where, where that came from. Okay. Was that the influence of of his parents? Oh, definitely not his parents. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's sometimes. I think he was trying to do the opposite of his father. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, that's an influence too, right? I, uh. Uh, can I share something with your listeners? A little yeah, shoot. tip to help them get into third gear. So I've been challenging uh, groups of people, audiences to do this for 15 years. So I'm going to challenge your, your listeners. Okay. Um, so based on what we've all been talking about, what I want you all to do is go out and buy 10 thank you cards and 10 stamps. 
and I want you to mail two cards a week for five weeks. Okay. And your card should be what I call sincere and specific. So, you know, as John was saying, don't send one to your spouse saying, good job. Okay. You got to put, <laughs> you got to put something in the card that they did. You got to say something like last week I saw you, you know, talk to my mother, uh, calm her down because I got, you know, right now I saw you with our kids. Uh, and, uh, Amazing person. I'm so lucky I married you. Okay. And you got to sign it and you got to mail it. Okay. And send it to your partner. Send it to the best spouse you ever had. Send it to the best teacher you ever had. Send it to the nurse at the clinic who got your daughter in with an earache. So it's got to be sincere and it's got to be searchable and you got to do it in third gear. In other words, with no expectations of anything coming back. Okay. So mm -hmm. two weeks, five weeks. And if you do this, uh, really fascinating things start to happen. First of all, some people will call you back and you'll hear like your family doctor saying, you know, I've been in medicine for 20 years. I've never gotten a handwritten thank you card from a patient. Thank you so much. Um, I I've taught this to university students, John, and I go, look, uh, you know, you get a text, you delete it. You get an email, you delete it. You get a handwritten thank you card with a note inside of it. Well, what you did that somebody else appreciated that thing will stay on your fridge or on your desk for years. <laughs> right? It's so funny you're saying this because like yeah. I've I've gotten I've gotten um, thank you emails and texts from students yeah. about uh, you know like I really loved your class you know thanks for this thanks for that um, those are all gone but I've gotten handwritten letters from students saying like you know your class like changed my life it was amazing i like exactly <laughs> those are those are on my on my wall in my office at work and some of them have been there for 15 years well like, you're absolutely right like they've been yeah, there they, for so long the other thing they do is they make you look good to people walk in your office because they go wow look at this guy and all this thank you cards so I always say to people, I said, look, if you want to make somebody else look good, you want to provide value to their life, you want to make yourself feel really good, 10 cards, two week for five weeks. And usually about 15% of people will do it. You know, I know it's only 15%. Why? Because I asked for one of those cards. I go, that's right. I, I'd like a card. And in my card, I want you to write what you got out of my talk, how you're applying it, you know, and then, and, and, or, you know, one thing you got out of my talk, right? So I have about 3,500 thank you cards at home. Mm -hmm. I got them all filed away. They're my evaluation form. The stories, John, that come out of these cards are amazing. Like I, we could spend hours talking about how people applied the gears in RHB, but uh, I'll share one with you because I think it's quite poignant about a I don't know, about four years ago, I get this call one evening and uh, guy says, is this Dave Hallett? I said, yeah. He goes, I'm a doctor at the local hospital. I heard your talk uh, last year when you came to the hospital. I said, oh, hi, doctor. How are you? He goes, I just want to tell you that um, I took that thank you card challenge. I said, oh, what happened? He said, well, I bought 10 cards and 10 stamps and I sent, uh, started sending them to the nurses on our ward. He said, they work really hard. So I thought, why not? So, you know, twice or once a week, I'd write two cards to two nurses. And in the card, I'd put what they did in third gear, something they went above and beyond, you know, an act of compassion or kindness. It's not the job description or how they really excelled at something. I said, oh, good. He goes, Dave, I got to tell you, like the response was overwhelming. I had nurses coming up to me crying 
in the hallway, like hugging me, man. And I'm like, why not? He goes, well, it was kind of weird. And I went, well, think about it. The head of the department in his own handwriting wrote something to her that she did. Uh, he, I said, that has a huge impact. That's, that's a sign of a really good leader. And he goes, well, that's not why I'm calling you. I said, oh, why are you calling me? He said, well, my dad's a doctor too. And he said, I don't get along with my doc, my dad. And he said, uh, I haven't talked to my dad in about six or seven years. We always fight a lot. And I just kind of wrote off the whole relationship. I said, okay. And he goes, so anyway, the last card I wrote was to my father. Oh my and I God. just, wow. I just, I wrote in the card how much I had to thank him for being a doctor. Cause I wouldn't have been a doctor if it hadn't been for my dad. And so dad, I want to thank you very much. He said, anyway, um, the reason I'm calling you today is my brother called me yesterday and my dad died from a heart attack two days ago. Whoa. And he said, and he said, I mailed that card two months ago. So he said, I know he got it and I know he read it. He said, but Dave, I mailed it in third gear. So there's no expectations. I did it to acknowledge a debt I had to my father, but he said, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I hadn't talked to my dad in seven years and he died. Yeah. So I, I want to thank you for that because he said, it allowed me to thank my father and, uh, you know, before he died and, uh, I thought, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, uh, I, you know, I, I, I too, I, I been teaching a class at John Abbott college called the pursuit of happiness. And one of the things I have them do in the class is, is, uh, keep a gratitude journal. And then at the end of the class, one of the things they have to do, it's not nearly as ambitious as what you have them do, um, because you have them write. 10 of these things. I, I only have them write one, but I have them write, um, a, a love letter to, but it's not a romantic love letter. It's a a love letter to a friend or a sibling or a parent, or it could be, you know, your cub scout leader or your, your coach or your, and it's basically just telling them like it being as specific as possible about how much they've meant to you and all the various ways in which you've they've helped you and things like that. And and they write these letters and they tell me, you know, 10, 12 years later about how powerful it was for them to to send that letter and how it changed their relationship with that person. And, you know, maybe like their parent didn't always feel really appreciated. And then after they got this like, you know, really well thought out uh, well-polished kind of, you know, three, four page letter handwritten front that it just was amazing. You know, they just felt very, very validated and very kind of appreciated and right. But no, it's, uh, it's, it's very powerful. I mean, it's just, you realize, and it's sad, you know, when you hear about these nurses crying after they get this, it just, it makes you realize that there's all these people walking around in our society who just really don't feel appreciated and noticed, yeah. Yeah. you know? And, and that's, and, I mean, cause if you're, if you're crying when you get something like that, on the one hand, that's very moving and that's very beautiful, but it's also really sad because like, you know, how little are you getting kind of noticed that that brings you to tears? Yeah, but there's also an opportunity there, which is if if John's card is the only card I ever get, even though I, you know, I'm working really hard, then I'm going to remember John for the rest of my life, right? And uh, 
Um, I had a lady call me one time. She said I was cleaning out my husband's desk. He's a doctor, a family doctor. And she said, I opened up and I saw this thank you card, opened it up. And I went, what's this? He goes, oh, it's a thank you card from a patient. She goes, uh, the date is 20 years ago. He goes, I only ever got one card. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. yeah. I yeah. wrote, so, uh, uh, yeah, I wrote my, my karate teacher when I was a kid yeah. growing up in Verdun. Um, I, I wrote a long kind of, uh, you know, for his, for his 80th birthday party, yeah. which was recently, uh, yeah. he's still teaching karate six days a week, 80 years old. Wow. Uh, but I, I wrote him like a long kind of thank you uh, letter where I talked about how much he meant to me when I was a kid and stuff like that. And like he he really appreciated it. Like he's on he just joined Facebook now, like in his 70s. Uh, nice. But and he he really appreciated it. And, you know, one of the things I stressed is like, look, I know there's a lot of other guys that you meant just as much to the, to them. It's just, you know, they maybe won't get around to writing something, but you should know that this is not just me. This is like lots of guys that I grew up with. You had this much of a good effect on them as well. Like, and it's, uh, yeah, it's very powerful. I mean, I, but I guess, you know, going back to your earlier point, I, I guess I'm, I'm worried by something you said where you're like, Oh, it's the same techniques as the con artist. I mean, like, cause it seems to me like if you're writing something like that, like I don't, you know, I don't want anything. I don't need anything or want anything from Don Lorenzetti, my karate teacher from when I was a kid. Like, I, I just want him to know that he's, you know, he's amazing and that his life has done a lot of good in the world. You know, look, I mean, you, you can't be responsible how other people receive it. OK, I always make this joke sometimes going, you know, I always stare, you know, it's a little uh I don't know, gender specific, but I always make a joke, John. I always look at the guys in the audience and I go, look, so I'm going to show you how to send a card to your wife. All right. So in the card, you write, you know, all those nice things that are very specific about what she's been doing. And then you mail it. And I said, in about a week time, she's going to get this envelope in the mail. She's going to open it up. And one of two things will happen. Number one, she'll start crying because it's a third gear card. It's not a birthday card. It's not an anniversary card. It's a just because card. And it just because card is, you know, the most powerful card there is because it comes out of the blue. Or number two, she's going to look at you and go, what did you do? Because <laughs> she thinks you you want something, right? Or you're trying to make up for something. Oh, you're right? trying to make up for something. Yeah, you're trying, which is what your concern is, right? So I always say, so I always say, look, if her reaction is, what did you do? But that means you've been a second year husband. In other words, the only time you're being nice to people is when you want something from them. Yeah. <laughs> that is so, so funny. I remember yeah. my, my friend Jimmy, who's uh, one of the, he, he's probably the funniest person that I know personally. Like he, yeah. he's like stand up comedian, hilarious. But he used to do this hilarious routine where he was, you remember the uh, De Beers Diamonds ads? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it yeah. would say, nothing says. I'd do it all over again. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It'd be like some yeah. product or something like that. Or nothing says I love you forever. Like, you know, De Beers and it would be one of their products. And he would do a spoof of this and it would be like, nothing says, I'm sorry. I fucked the babysitter. <laughs> like, like I, nothing I, says, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> that's exactly what you're talking about. Like, so yeah. if, if, if you have established a, a second gear relationship where you're always uh, 
angling for something, right? Then if you call up and you start saying nice things, people are automatically going to assume, all right, what does he want? You know? Franz Duvall, the, um, the ethologist and wildlife biologist, he has a wonderful book, which a lot of your stuff reminds me of this book called The, the Age of Empathy. Um, and um, hey, this is a fantastic, very interesting book. But he, he has this great anecdote in his book where he says that he and his wife were at this conference uh, and this guy stood up and made this presentation. And he said, oh, I know how to have a really good marriage. And he had like an Excel spreadsheet. And he said, you know, me and my wife, basically we break down all of the household tasks and all of the things in the marriage and we keep a a tally of everything that we do. And it was down to sort of like compliment on Tuesday, right? So now <laughs> yeah. like uh, everything, it was like, you know, doing dishes, unloaded dishwasher, loaded dishwasher, picked up dry cleaning, like all this stuff, right? And um, and he said, you know, we we found out six months after the that particular conference that this guy was going through his fifth divorce, <laughs> uh, so clearly, like second gear, if you're gonna run a marriage or an organization, yeah. just on reciprocity, where everybody's sort of keeping score all the time, um, it doesn't work long term. Well, I mean, you're you're right. Steve Kanellakis is the city manager in Ottawa. Um, he used me for a whole bunch of presentations for his leaders, and. I asked him what he was trying to create. And he said, I'm trying to create a servant leadership culture. And I said, what does that mean? He said, well, he said, I used to be city manager in Vaughan, Ontario. And he said, the mayor had a degree in theology. And he used to use this, uh, I don't know if it's a Jesuit quote, but he said, if you're helping somebody uh, and expecting them to help you back, you're doing business, not kindness. Oh, wow. So he said, I'm trying to create a culture around kindness. And he said, I saw your website. I looked at your TED talk and he said, I love those three gears and that's what I want. I want to build a culture around third gear. So, you know, for any of your listeners who want to do something similar, there's some elements to doing that. One is you got to walk the walk, right? You can't be the parent lying on the couch eating potato chips, telling your kids to go out and exercise. If you want your kids to be good people, you got to role model a behavior. And part of that is, as you say, not everything is tit for tat or reciprocity. Sometimes you got to be kind and compassionate and you're not going to get anything out of it. In fact, sometimes when you're in third gear, you actually get damaged, right? I mean, sometimes yeah. you get hurt when you're trying to be the uh, the compassionate one. But And that's why it's hard to sustain. And that's the easiest way to sustain is to be around other people who are on that same journey. So Yeah. Well, I, I find there is there's ways in which if you're around somebody who's like really, really cheap, uh, and very stingy with their, with their praise, with their emotions, with their money, with, with everything that they, if they can sort of set the, the tone for the group, then everybody gets into that mode. Right. But if you sure. have somebody who's just really, really generous with their, with their time and with their emotional energy and they just, they, they give and they give and they give and they don't necessarily require, they don't make very many demands of other people. Um, that sets another kind of tone, right? And I've, and I've been around um, all different kinds of people, but I, I find that in, a, in an organization where you have like really sort of generous, I guess what you would say, like people who are 
living a lot of their, I mean, they have bad days, but like people yeah. who are living a lot of their life in that, that third gear where they're thinking about giving to, to other people and get, thinking about their legacy and thinking about the big picture, it sets a tone, you know, it's um, like, I remember there was this guy, I mean, I was a, I was a, sorry, I hate, sorry, I hate to cut you off mid story, but I only got about seven minutes left. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well then, um, then why don't you just tell us sort of in the last, uh, the last kind of five, five, seven minutes, sort of some parting words, um, what you would, what you're working on right now, um, what you would like to work on in the future and, uh, maybe some parting words of wisdom to, uh, to the, the fair citizens of Lakeville. <laughs> okay. So a uh, few parting words. Um, if you really want to make this podcast stick, a few things. Number one is try that thank you card challenge. Uh, Ten cards, two a week for five weeks. I don't care who you send them to. Just people have added value to your life. Um, perhaps I can leave my contact information on your uh, show notes, John. And if okay. anybody wants to shoot me an email, text, or heck, even a thank you card, I love to hear it. Uh, I always love to hear what people got out of the talk and how they're applying it. Second, if you really want to make this stuff stick, teach it to any kid under the age of 10. Okay. Take your son or daughter and just say, look, I'm going to teach you what I call the three gears. Uh, obviously, unless they have a driver's license, <laughs> you can use a doorway. <laughs> you can say, you know, you, you can let the door slam in the person's face behind you. And that's first gear. You can open the door for somebody else, but they better say thank you. Otherwise, you're mad. And that's second gear. Or you can just open the door for people. And that's third gear. And if they say thank you, that's great. But if they don't say thank you, that's okay too, because you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And that's the person you want to be. By the way, if you teach it to a, a young boy or a girl who's in sports and they get the three gears, ask them what first gear is in sports. And I guarantee you, they'll say it's a ball hog. It's a puck hog. Yeah. Kids know instinctively what first gear is. If you assign it to sports, um, it also uh, works very well religion. So if you're raising your son or daughter in a spiritual capacity, whether it's Islam or, or Judaism or Christianity or, or Hindu, you know, you could do a little homework assignment. Give me an example of first, second, and third gear from the holy book. So what I'm trying to do is build a bridge, John, which is, you know, we have so many things that tell us we're different, our province we lived in or our, our uh, religion or our ethnicity or political party. But I think RHB is a bridge that can create this linkage between people who are trying to be in third gear. Um, what am I working on right now? I'm always looking for different applications of the gears. Uh, I do a lot of work in the corporate world where they're trying to build a third gear culture, teach their salespeople or finance to people to be in third gear. Um, I'm always looking for new opportunities. So if anybody can think of a conference or an event that they think I'd be great at, I'd appreciate that. Uh, other than that, uh, my wife and I are training for another Ironman next uh, summer. It'll be our Ironman number 10. Wow. So uh, not bad for a 60-year-old dude. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you so much for coming on the podcast, and I, I look forward to interacting you with you in social media land. You are always a civil and sane and kind presence in that uh, drunken cesspool. <laughs> but, uh, all right. So thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.